Good turning your scriptures, and I want to hear pages to the book of Joshua. How many are still keeping up with your Bible reading? Hey, that's great. I hate to be the skeptic or the cynic. That's more hands than I expected. If you are up to date and have already read this morning, maybe you'll read this afternoon. You should be in Joshua 12, I believe, 12 through 15. And I just thought since we have a break between the current series that has just ended and uh, now Eastern, then he said he would be going into Matthew, Seth. Um, I thought we would just take a sermon from the book that we're all in. So you're not quite at the portion we're going to read this morning, but it's kind of a summary statement of the book of Joshua up to its point. And so I thought it may be appropriate for us for a one-off. I trust by now I can stop making up things to say, and you have reached Joshua 21, and we will be reading in verse 43 to verse 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one word of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. And we are incapable of understanding. We are incapable, Lord, of on our own, opening our minds to to see the mysteries of God and to gain something of an understanding of the mysteries of God, but yet you are able in even this to overcome our weakness. We pray that you would do so. Quicken our minds to hear, to understand, Lord. Affect our wills that where we should, we would gladly submit and obey. And Lord, lift up our heads that we might see something of the glory of God in the character of God, and the goodness of God. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, our God and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I'm going to turn on this Owen or whoever's doing sound. I forgot to turn this on. I hope this doesn't make a loud noise (laughs) because I'm going to turn it on late. Having avoided an eruption. Okay. We come to this part in Joshua, which I have come to think, I have come to think or believe is the theological center of the book. I think this is a summary of God's faithfulness to his people, and as we've gone through portions of the book up to this point, um, it is a summing up of all that has come before. I know that there are chapters that come afterwards, such as 22 to 24, to finish up the book. Um, but I'm, I, I tend to think I take that as an epilogue. Um, it's an interesting uh, add-on to the book, but I do think it is that somewhat of an add-on. It's important. Uh, verses 22 to 24 contain information we get nowhere else. We see that after the after the death of Joshua, and the, or after the conquest, the initial conquest of the land, as the tribes were then going to separate and go their own ways, that we come very near to a civil war. Right off the bat, we get in trouble. How many times have we seen God do amazing things and then right off the bat we do something stupid? But they come close to a civil war, which is thankfully averted. Maybe this is a foreshadowing of things to come, as we know that later on the tribes of Israel tend to split into two parts and we have two nations. Um, But at this moment, it does not come to fruition. 
We see in chapter 23 and towards the end then where God is calling God's people, where Joshua is calling God's people to continue in covenant faithfulness to their God who has been covenantly faithful to them, certainly, without fail, as he has brought them into the land and fulfilled his good word to them. So he comes and calls them to covenant faithfulness that the good words of God may continue for them because in the covenant made with God regarding the land, there were also some bad words from God which are ultimately good because they're from God, but he warned them, if you turn aside from following me, all the the curses of the covenant will come upon you as well, and I will eventually remove you from the land. So continue in the things of God. And it is a summary of how then to continue in the land and to continue to enjoy the blessings of God. God can give it. God can take it away. And so there's the warning. Continue steadfastly. And that's 22 through 24 as an epilogue. Our statement also, our, our three verses as a summary, could also be seen as a statement of worship. You know, when we get to the, in the New Testament, just as an example, when Paul is preaching through, writing through Romans, but I say preaching through because it really is kind of a sermon meant to be taken as a whole and its parts, but certainly as a whole. And when Paul gets through the end of Romans 11, which admittedly, contains some mystery and some difficulties for some of us. And Paul, he just simply reacts with this eruption of praise. And he says, oh, how deep, this is a paraphrase, oh, how deep the wealth of God's wisdom and knowledge. He just stands in awe of what God has revealed and what God has done. And so here, this is as if Joshua, the author of the book, came to the same point in Israel's history and has seen what God has done, and he just erupts in praise saying, oh, how firm the word and the promise of God. And I think that's an excellent summary of our summary. This is worship. But either way you look at it, either as a summary or the high point of the book, or is certainly a turning point in the book, and we see here in, in two parts leading up to this point, we saw the conquest of the land, and that's roughly chapters 1 through 12, 12 where you should be today. And then, And in this part, there's some great stories, are there not? I mean, this is where we get the story of Jericho and the destruction of Jericho, how God fights for his people and knocks the walls down flat. And yet, grace in the midst of this, as he saves, he plucks Rahab out of there and saves her, and she joins herself to Israel. There is the story of of Ai and Achan, where at first they suffered their first defeat, and they want to know why, but God reveals that there's sin in the camp, and ultimately he gathers people together, and the earth swallows them up. Wow. Wow. So there's much here to gather our interest. One of my favorite is the five kings story of chapter 10 to where five kings of the land, the Canaanites, come together and they attack Gibeon who had recently made a peace treaty with Israel. And so they call out for Joshua to come save them and then Joshua comes and a great victory is granted that day. But it's, it's fascinating. God, again, fights for them. And he sends hail from heaven and it says that those who killed by hail... Those killed directly by the judgment of God were more than those slain by Joshua. Can you imagine that day? And in the midst of all that, Joshua says, Lord, stop the sun. Stop the advance of time that we might have full of vengeance on on the enemies of God. And so it's the only 48-hour day in the history of the world. Amazing stories, stories that certainly can keep our attention. And then we come to chapter 13. And I will say, there are some sections of Scripture not as exciting as others. You know, because from 13 to 21, now we have this listing 
of the division of the land and the assigning the portions to the various different tribes of Israel. And admittedly, not as exciting, I would say, except or unless you are Israel itself. I mean, after 40 years of wandering and hoping for this, the fulfillment of this promise, you've now entered the land, and you can just almost see, as they're going through the chart and dividing off the borders and saying, now here, this is for Dan. Now here, this is for Benjamin. You can almost see the tribes of Israel doing the wave almost every time. I mean, really. So as now you're just reaching that point in your reading and moving forward, Try to read it with a little bit of excitement, just understanding the fulfillment after the years and decades of anticipation. So even in the somewhat tedious readings, there is some beauty and some glory there. Now, back to our text, verses 43 to 45. Three times as we begin, it says, The Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. In verse 43, the Lord gave Israel the land as he had sworn Verse 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And then at the end of 44, the Lord gave all their enemies into the hand. All that has taken place in Joshua up to this point, whether God knocks the walls down flat or he obviously uses means, there were people there who did great things, you know, strengthened by God, directed by God. But yet ultimately, on the highest level of understanding, this was what God did. The Lord gave as he had sworn. The Lord gave as he had sworn. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. This was an act of God for his people in fulfillment of all that he had promised them. He had promised and he had accomplished. And so the rest of our time we will look at just these three verses. And there are three main ideas or issues or motifs, whatever word you prefer, three ideas we're going to look at. And they really are land, rest, and word. Land, rest, and word. So there's your outline if you're going to take notes. Land, rest, and word. We're going to keep it that simple this morning. Verse 43, land. The Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. Land is a major motif, not just in our passage here being first, but also throughout the book of Joshua. And as we will see, it also extends through the scriptures as a whole. Major motif, land. The word land is actually used in Joshua alone in a mere 24 chapters, 70 times. So on average, you know, three times a chapter. But when you see a repetition such as that, you understand that, hey, we've got to focus here on the land. What can we learn about it? And before we do, let's deal with the difficulty up front. Because if you have been reading, if you've read ahead, if you remember from having read it before, they don't actually possess all the land that was promised yet. And so the word here, the Lord gave Israel all the land, is, is a difficulty at first glance. It should not be. It is not a contradiction. It is not a failure. The word all, this particular word in all in Hebrew, the original, is actually a very flexible word. And it is not necessarily meaning all to the full or all, each and every one, or all in its intent. It is more of a general term that talks about the Lord giving them the land. And this is a fair application because They are in the land. They have conquered the land. They have faced much opposition, and they are now currently actually dwelling in the land, have received portions of the land. Rahab told them that God has put the fear of you in the hearts of all the kings and the leaders. You know, so, So the enemy is held at bay. Not an enemy stands before them. So they are in the land. They have They have dominion over the land. So whether they possess it all, or not yet, they certainly have control and dominance. And so in that sense, they possessed it, lived in it, controlled it. 
And this is not against all that God had promised, because if you go back to Deuteronomy 7 as just an example, God had said, I won't give it to you all at once. And he said, look, you're really not enough people to possess it all at once, and so if we do it all at once, too much of the land will remain bare. And then it will grow thorns and thistles, and the wild animals will multiply, and it will make life difficult. So he gave them the land, and he said all along he was going to give it. And as their numbers grow, they would continue to spread and eventually fill even the boundaries, even to the all, all of the land. But he's doing it exactly in the way that he said he would. So they have control, and they have dominance, and there is even more to come. And so if you're Israel on this day, not only are you rejoicing, but you're excited for the future. However, there's one more difficulty. Um, if you go back and take the biblical context as a whole, we see that the full extent of the land promised actually goes all the way to the Euphrates River and all the way down to the border of Egypt. We see this uh, in the promise to Abraham back in chapter uh, Genesis chapter 15. And yet, again, it has not been entirely fulfilled. However, we see its final fulfillment in its earthly sense in Second Chronicles 9.26, where we see in Israel under King Solomon, who extended their borders to the furthest extent before because of sin and failures that God began to reduce them. Okay, But it says, Solomon was ruler over all the kings, from the Euphrates River even to the land of the Philistines and as far as the borders of Egypt. And so there does come a point in the time in history, in Israel's history, where even that was given in its fullness, in spite of the many shortcomings and failures of God's people, God was faithful to his promise. But is that the end of it, really? I mean, if that's the promise of the land and that's it, well, then we're done there. We can move on. We'll talk about something else. But that is not it. Okay, Even Abraham was expecting something more than even that. Because we see in Hebrews 11 that Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, and yet he was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. He knew there was something more heavenly attached to the promise of the physical, and that the physical was just an example of or a type of pointing to his future glory that he probably couldn't even wrap his head around in it entirely. So Abraham was even expecting more. And so what is this, this land motif? Well, this land motif actually runs through scriptures. And it was very interesting in its timing in God's providence. He showed me a Wisdom Wednesday video just a week ago where Dr. John Currid from RTS Jackson was talking about the land motif in Joshua and how we see the fulfillment of it for the people of God even down to the present day. And I got to tell you, this is, I, I saw this while I was in my office at work and it's one of those times I just get excited. Things I've read so many times, and yet a brilliant man whom God uses to string things together that I had never seen before. So this, and I can't do it justice, so let me just mention it. There are many times when speaking of the land connected to the promises of God that it's also connected to, like, water. And if you go back to the original creation, you know, God separated the waters from the waters, and there was a heaven, but then there was basically just still waters on the face of the earth until God came and gathered the waters into one place and dry land appeared onto which he put Adam and Eve and said, go and be fruitful and multiply through the waters to the land of promise, to the blessings of God. Just the first instance without trying to read too much into it, but cannot ignore it either. Creation. Only a few chapters later, we see the recreation. After the time of the flood, when the waters rose up and covered all the mountains. And yet, in the midst of that, it says that God remembered Noah. 
And so what did he do? He caused the waters once again to abate and to be gathered into their places, and the dry land appeared. And when Moses and his family finally come out of the ark onto the land, God gives them the same commission he gave Adam, go, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. So we have creation, we have recreation. We have this entering into the land of promise and under the blessing of God. We get to the time of Exodus, the time that we're probably most familiar with, you know, when he calls his people out of Egypt, has them, divides the Red Seas for them to walk through on dry land as they are headed where but to the promised land in fulfillment of the promises of God. We see the same thing at the beginning of Joshua, where God divides the waters of the Jordan River as the people are entering into the actual land of promise and who now God has fulfilled in giving it to them, the land of blessing, returning to, really, the Garden of Eden, or at least in its potential, God's intent. He brings them through the water towards his inheritance. And then there's one more episode I had never really thought before, always thought it was strange, but Elijah in 2 Kings 2. Elijah is sent by God from Bethel down to Jericho and down to the Jordan, the exact opposite path of of Jeremiah, Joshua, of Joshua's entry into the land, through the Jordan to Jericho, and then ultimately up to the area around Bethel, which is up near Ai. So a reverse of it. And when the prophet gets to the Jordan River on the day that he is supposed to be taken up, he takes off his cloak, slaps the water, and God divides it up once again. And when he reaches the other side, the chariots of God come and receive the prophet and take him up into heavenly glory. So again, we have a dividing of the waters, an entry into the land, and then a raising up into the heavenly. So whereas before this, we have the physical, the physical. Now it has been translated into the spiritual, and as he has received into his heavenly inheritance. That just gives me goosebumps when I see the Bible tied together by someone who really, truly has given himself to study and and digging out these nuggets. When we get to the New Testament... 1 Peter 1.4 says that we have been given or has been reserved for us an inheritance in the heavens which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you, the people of God. Do you see the picture? God brings us through trials, brings us through toils. We walk through land as an alien, but we are ultimately headed to the promised land. And it's, and it's not just by word, but by example, by picture, by metaphor, whatever you want. God says it over and over and over so that we might see it and rejoice in the promise, even to us. So the promise of the land is not just to the people of Israel in the day of, Jer- of Joshua. I keep wanting to say Jeremiah. We've been there. Not just for the people in the day of Joshua, it's for you too. For the Lord is taking you towards a heavenly land. John Bunyan would write of the celestial city and talk about the beauty, and he can explain it or describe it so much more than I can. There are not adequate words. But there's a day of glory up ahead, as we are also heading to the land of promise and a heavenly inheritance, one that cannot be taken away, one that does not rot and spoil, one that does not fade. Its glory is new every morning, one that you can rejoice in, one in which there will be peace, safety, all these things that we can only now imagine. There is a promise even to you. So it's not just the land for Joshua and his people. We are told in Matthew 5, 5, even in the Beatitudes where Seth will soon be going, that, that those are the humble, blessed are the humble. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. 
We go to Revelation 21 and we see a whole picture of the new heavens and the new earth and the holy city itself coming down. And it'll be a place where there'll be no more tears and God himself will wipe the tears from your eyes and there'll be no more pain. The heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly land, the celestial city for the people of God. We will also inherit these things. If, if, if you walk through your days, day by day, looking only at what's around you, you will probably at some point come to despair. Probably. Maybe your life is so blessed that it never comes. But there will come a day, and there will be a place when we will inherit all these things. A new land. Verse 43. Let's move to verse 44. First we had land, now we have rest. Rest. This is so closely tied to the land, it's almost hard to separate uh, because in this land there is rest. God gives rest. So, rest was promised also, not just a land. The, the promise of rest for the people of God was given actually to Moses in Exodus 33 where God at first was going to abandon his people, but Moses interceded and said, please don't. You know, go with us or don't send us up from here. He's like, I will go with you. And you will eventually have rest. This promise of rest. In our immediate context, the word for rest actually can mean several things. It can be a rest from wandering, which is certainly fit for the people who'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It can be a rest from toil. Sometimes we work hard and hard and hard, and it seems like there's no end of this. But yet, there is a rest from toil up ahead as part of this word. And in our immediate context, I think it is rest from our enemies. Rest from warfare. We see this clearly. The Lord gave them rest on every side. Another idea about this rest, by the way, is that it's a broad place. I mean, think about it. The Lord sent them into an inhabited land, and he carved out a place for them, a place of rest, a broad place where nothing threatens from the outside because it's been pushed off. Okay, a broad place of rest, a place of safety. So rest from enemies, verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them, and the Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. And remember, the Lord also put the fear of God into the people's hearts, the people of the land, so that they might just back off. They might at first threatening sometimes run away because this is the people of God. We cannot stand before them. And so there is rest. But again... In this immediate context, is that all? Is this for them? For them only? No, no, no. Again, rest throughout Scripture. And we see it early in the Scriptures because in Genesis 2, when God had finished the creation of the world in six days, what did He do? He rested. God rested. Many commentators, and I would agree with them, sum this up in a phrase, eschatology precedes soteriology. The whole ordering and reports of the creation, one thing that it does, all the work leading up to rest, points towards an end goal. It says that everything that God has done and is doing is moving towards a goal, symbolized by the fact that God, when he was done, rested. It's not that God did nothing else. Why would they put that in there? Does God actually truly ever rest from work? Because he sustains all things by the word of his power. He watches over his creation. He sustains it in his providence. So what does rest mean? It means that everything is moving towards the goal towards glory once again, the place of rest. And that is just the first example that we have been given of it. But in the Ten Commandments, when we get to the Fourth Commandment, what is it? Give yourselves or take a day of rest. 
It is a holy day for the Lord, but one of the primary components of this is a rest, a rest from our labors, a resting unto the Lord is the emphasis of the commandment. And this resting is also a form of worship. When we take a day and we refuse to worry about the bills or to worry about the things that have to get done, we say, Lord, I trust you to provide where I cannot. We say, I need you more than I need other things. We say, I trust you for the provisions that I'm not out there trying to scrape together at this point. It is a form of rest in itself to simply take the day. And in that day, we gather to worship he who gives us this rest. So I need you. I trust you. But that's not all. That's still Old Testament. We run forward to Matthew 11, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Rest. Throughout the scriptures, rest. Rest. Now, the rest of Christ is first and foremost, in this life, spiritual. The rest of Christ is related to this whole idea that we must be born again. We must be made new. The rest of Christ causes us to be born again. He gives us faith. He gives us new life. He gives us the forgiveness of sins. He reconciles us to our Creator. We can be free from the fear of death, do you realize that we are actually held in captivity by our fear of death, according to Hebrews 4? And in Christ, the rest that he frees you, death no longer holds fear over us. Maybe the process of death can be a little intimidating. Maybe the unknown leaves us a little unsettled. But the fact is, the last enemy to die is death, and Christ has conquered that and gives it to you as part of his rest. The rest of Christ. This rest of Christ is complete and final in itself. Okay? A salvation should bring you a certain measure of rest. But in this life, if we're going to be honest, it doesn't always feel very restful in here and now, does it? I find life painful. And don't get me wrong, I haven't suffered. But when I look around... You know, when I look around and I see people struck down in the midst of their strength with some kind of illness or disease, there's pain there. When I see marriages torn apart and kids suffering because of all the extra stress and strain and turmoil in the household, there's pain there. I have to stop myself. I have to stop myself so as not to beat everybody into despair. <laughs> But just look around you. And so this rest, remember remember that though salvation be true and real and fully accomplished, we still live in this life. We still live as Abraham and the Israelites did, as aliens and strangers in a world that no longer fits us. And we may have this underlying joy and peace and the security and assurance of faith in our Lord who has given us this rest, but these silver linings are all wrapped in clouds because we still live in this already not yet. But just like we can't ignore the turmoil around us, neither should you ignore the rest that you currently are in possession of and use that to stir up in you the hope of the future and eternal because that's just the down payment of your inheritance to come. In the midst of the pain and the turmoil and the deprivation, there is rest, even here and now, just not in its fullness. But oh, what a taste of the glory to come. There will be rest in that land. 
So yes, we have peace and joy, though we still live in this here and now, and this already not yet. So when you look around and you see the pain, give yourselves to be a minister of Christ to those in pain. Offer to them this rest of Jesus. And if there's someone here today who doesn't have a clue what I mean by the rest of Jesus, where we can actually be at peace with our Creator rather than living under a fear of judgment, rather than living under a fear of the death to come and then wondering what's next. There is a rest for you. And if you don't understand that, come talk to us. Not, not, I'll be glad to talk to you. I'll be up here after the service you know, or at dinner. But there are people here who will talk to you. Ask the questions. Don't go away in silence. If you hear his voice today offering you this rest, then turn and look into the face of Christ who gives this rest free of cost to you. I say free of cost to you because I don't want you to think salvation is cheap. Right, young people? We did this in Sunday school. Your salvation is not cheap. It costs God dearly. It costs Christ dearly. It is of infinite value, but it is offered to you free. That's the rest of Christ, which is just an inheritance, a down payment, a sampling of the glory yet to come. Because in that land, there is rest. Hebrews 4 tells us there, there is a Sabbath rest yet to enter. A Sabbath rest yet to enter. And though we are not going to read it now, I refer you to 2 Thessalonians 1, just 6 through 10, because part of this rest also is a rest from our enemies and a rest from the enemies of God. There is judgment on the opponents of God. There is judgment on those who will who will oppose him and fight against him and try to fight against God's people. Well, God does not take this lightly. And part of your rest, just as it was for Israel, is also the the, the destruction, the judgment, the elimination of the enemies of God, which are your enemies as well, so that just as they could live in a land of safety because God had created for them a broad place, so will we when the enemies of God are also destroyed. It seems in this life, if you read in like Psalm 73, for instance, and I think Psalm 37, where it seems as if the ungodly have every advantage and have every benefit. And it can lead you to despair, as the psalmist of 73 admitted. You say, I almost gave up. But then I entered into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. God will make it right. God will balance that out. The enemies of God and God's people will be destroyed, and you will have rest. Rest is our inheritance in that land. Now, what's our third word? Land, rest. Our third word is word. And in an appropriate manner, our third word being word shows up three times in verse 45. In our English translation, it's not quite there. It says in the ESV, I believe it says not one word, although in the NAS it was left out. It just says not one. It should say word. I don't criticize the NAS too often. That's my, that's my translation of choice. But they're wrong here, as best I can tell. And the word, not one word of the good, it says promises, but it should say words. Not one word of the good words which the Lord had spoken or made, the promises made, not one word of the good words which the Lord had spoken, word, which the word, which the Lord had worded to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. But here we have a repetition. We have an emphasis on the word, word. So what all can we get from this word, word? All that God had spoken, he, he did. It says, none of these words to the house of Israel failed. 
You'll notice in our title, it's no falling words. That's actually more literal to this interpretation here. The words of God didn't fall. They didn't fall to the ground. It literally talks about falling from a higher place to a lower place. It's not like it hit the wall and bounced off and fallen and it's laying there in the mud. The words of God did not fall. There are no falling words when it comes to the word of God. The word of God does not fail. There are no falling words. Whatever God speaks comes to pass. No matter the enemy, no matter the opposition, no matter the sin and unbelief of God's people, no matter sickness, warfare, death, or time. (laughs) No matter the time. You ever been frustrated waiting on God? You realize from the time that God told Abraham he would have the son of promise, it took him 25 years before he saw that son. You realize that he lived another 75 years waiting for an inheritance in the land and all he had was a cemetery plot. Time, a hundred years since God called him and said, go here, I'm going to give you offspring and I'm going to give you the land. Time, never received it. He lived as a king in the land. God blessed him greatly, but he didn't possess it. So from the time that God promised Abraham to the promise of Joshua where he brings him into the land, do you have any idea how much time that was? Anybody want to guess? 600 years. Did the word of God fail? No, no. No, because time, which we may see as the enemy, doesn't bother him a bit. I learned this in a small group I used to teach in Sebastian, of which Bud and Ann Tobin were part and who are here today. My wife and I were frustrated. We had been praying and wanting to do a certain thing, whatever, and we'd been waiting. They said, well, how long have you been waiting? And we said, five years. We've been wondering, when's God going to do this? They laughed at me. They had a different perspective that only years brings. They said, son, five years, five years, 600 years here. We should still laugh. God's not slow about keeping his promises, Peter tells us, but he's right on time. He's patient because he has purposes that he's waiting to fulfill. And he's accomplishing many things around you that you do not know. God's timing is perfect. Time is not the enemy of God's word. None of these things can cause God's word to fail because with God there are no falling words, no matter the enemy. God is right on schedule. Have you ever pondered, as we come to such a short little passage like this, and it says it so quickly, well, God did all that he said he'd do. And then we move on. Have you ever pondered what it took to get Israel to this point from the time that he made a promise to Abraham? I'm fascinated by this. You know, after the first hundred years, we think, well, maybe I misunderstood. After the first two or three hundred years, we might take ourselves to cursing God. You lied to me. But there are no falling words. See, God set about to accomplish his purposes, and he didn't necessarily give us his schedule. This is, this is related to the whole idea of God's decrees. And again, some of you young people from our Sunday school class, by the way, we teach some heavy doctrine in our Sunday school class for the young people because they can take it. Give it to them. <laughs> they need it. I'd give my right arm to have been taught this earlier in life. In our Sunday school class, we talked about God's decrees. The shorter catechism tells us that the decrees of God are his eternal purposes, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained all things that come to pass. Now, he didn't necessarily declare all that, so when we say decree, who would he talk to? Because he did this before he turned it from eternity past. He set about, say, here's what I'm going to do. 
Okay, now some of God's decrees he has revealed to us because it pleased the Lord in time to reveal to us and to make a promise to Abraham to let him know that, hey, I'm going to accomplish this. So that when it came true, his people might turn around and be amazed and offer up the worship that he is due. So while he hasn't told us all of his decrees, he's given us glimpses at certain points and said, watch this, I'm going to do this and nothing's going to stop me. But how did he accomplish this when it comes to the promise to Abraham? How did he bring it about? Well, how does he accomplish his good works? Also from the catechism, he accomplishes his decree in the works of creation and providence. In other words, he made stuff. (laughs) He made stuff to illustrate or to show off or to perform that his decrees were good and that he would accomplish all things. But then the other thing is creation and providence. What is God's providence? Providence means that by his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all his actions. He can bring it to pass, and it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how much resistance might come across. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. If God said he's going to do it, and he created the means whereby he's going to accomplish it, who's going to stop him? So, how did he accomplish all these things in his promise to Abram? How did he do it? Well, he said, if I'm going to bring a people into a, into a nation, into a promised land later in life, I've got to first build a nation, don't I? And so through a whole list of barren women, think about it. It seems like every generation there's at least one barren woman whom God enables to bear a child so that the line of the seed can continue. So through a whole bunch of barren women, he started and created a nation. He eventually moves that nation, which is surrounded by foreign nations, to Egypt through the dysfunctional disputes of a bunch of a bunch of children that needed a little more discipline these are Jacob's children through the dysfunctional family and through a famine he eventually moves this nation this this fledgling nation to Egypt there he incubated it eventually making them slaves over a period of 400 years where he multiplied their numbers from 70 to 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 multi-million It says when they first numbered the troops, remember, there were over 600,000 troops, and those were men of fighting age. So you can easily say a couple of million people started with 70. Over four centuries, God incubated, God grew, he multiplied. And then what does he do? This is amazing. He takes a nation from within a nation, and he moves it out in mass all at once. Not an immigration. They didn't go to the promised land over decades and decades, one going and the next following. In mass, the entire nation, it's time, removes it from one of the more powerful nations in the Middle East at the time, all at once. And in doing so, impoverishing that kingdom and destroying their military, God spoke it. See, he didn't even work up a sweat. So what else did he do? Well, he had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years where he sustained these millions of people in a wasteland by giving them bread every morning, quail on occasion, and water by simply speaking to a rock. See what all God is doing to fulfill the promise to one man because he said he would? He brings them finally into a nation, using them as his rod of discipline to destroy seven other nations already present. And even that is too myopic of a view, because what about the nations around them? Whenever there's a vacuum of power, somebody moves to fill it, do they not? Well, to the north, we had at least four other kingdoms. You know, we had the Hittites, the Mitannis, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. And at this particular moment in history, none of them are ascendant, because they are fighting among themselves over who's going to get to be the next big kid on the block. 
And at the other side, Egypt did actually recover because remember, this was 40 years before they went in. But it's, a, it's either the son or the grandson of the Pharaoh of the Exodus who was so consumed by his hobbies of hunting in the arts that he didn't bother with his kingdom. And his son after him was too busy inventing a new religion where he was changing the religion of Egypt to a monotheistic theistic religion where they were worshiping a disc that represented the sun. They were too busy, too distracted. The hearts of the kings of the nations are in the hands of God. So some by other warfare as a distraction, some by simply their own personal desires, giving themselves away to other things, and yet he creates this broad place into which he brings his people because he made a promise to Abraham 600 years before. We are nothing, the, the nations are nothing more than the pawns of God on a chessboard. And he will do with the nations what he chooses. This is the same God that mentions Cyrus as the one who would deliver his people after the, after the exile and send them back. He mentioned that before Cyrus was born and named. Cyrus, my servant. Pawns in the hand of God because he spoke a word. Not one word of the good words of God fall. Not one word. Pawns on a chessboard. I have a word for you this morning, a word from God. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And no matter the sickness, no matter the enemies, no matter the passage of time, come hell or high water, There is a land of rest up ahead. A land of rest up ahead for the people of God. And that sounds so general. A land up of rest for you. And you, and you. Land of rest up ahead. And we, our problem, not our problem, our privilege, is to press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. And we should do this in confidence... Because God has given us this word. He's given us this word. The word of God does not fail. The word of God will not fail. And the word of God cannot fail. No matter what it takes, he's given you his word. And he's called you to himself. So let us pray. And then let us once again worship this God. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I pray that you would make us more diligent diligent students of your word because there is so much treasure here. So much treasure here. Lord, you did not have to do anything. You could have left us in the dark. And you could have accomplished your good purposes and glorified yourself in in immeasurable ways. But yet you've chosen to include us and to reveal to us what you are doing that we might not just wander about in the dark. Lord, let us see these things. Let these things take root in our hearts. And Lord, may our conviction in the truth of these things, the trustworthiness of these things, may this grow, that we might not be easily shaken and that we might worship you without distraction, without despair, without fear. Lord, do do this work in us and receive, even now, our worship. In Christ's name we pray. If you 